0: My name is Eric, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be teaching a little bit on the concept of faith. And I think everybody comes to church expecting to hear about faith, but I'm not really sure we really understand what faith means. Faith isn't really what we think it is. It's something far greater. It's not mere belief. Faith is more than belief. So today we're going to be talking about the, uh, the power of faith, but really the substance of it and what it really means. I'll start by just telling a little bit of a story. This is a silly analogy and probably only applies to 10% of the congregation here, guys that are about my age that grew up with Nintendo, the original Nintendo, with the two buttons, the B and then the A for some reason, and uh, nothing else. And I was given my first Nintendo, I think, when I was eight years old, and my life was never the same after that. And what I mean by that is before the Nintendo, I was a responsible straight-A student. (laughs) after the Nintendo when I got addicted to video games, uh, downhill, downhill from there. I loved playing these sports games and you know like uh, Madden for example. Anybody, whoop, whoop. All right, anyway, so I, I don't play anymore but like I used to a lot and, and uh, one of my favorite things to do as the video games advance is they let you create yourself in the game. Remember doing that? And you could create yourself and you could choose the team you played for and your number and, like, they even let you choose your skin color, your height, your muscleness or whatever and all of it. And you could, you could even assign yourself a certain rating on all these skill categories. And so in football, for example, you got to choose how strong your arm was if you were a quarterback, or how accurate, or, or how well you uh, caught the ball, or how well you held onto the ball when you were being tackled, how well you broke tackles, and speed, and agil- agility, and all these things. But the trick to it was there was an economy of points. You had a limited number of points you could assign yourself, so you couldn't be great at everything. So you had to decide, am I going to be fast but weak? Am I gonna have a strong arm that's inaccurate? Like, these were the tough decisions of my childhood. And that was the way I grew up. And, and the, there was always one category, though, in that, in that system that allowed for a little bit of grace because it didn't really seem to matter to how good you were at the game. And that category, strangely enough, was called awareness. And I don't really know why, I didn't right then know why they had a category called awareness next to speed and agility and all those other things. Those other things, it seems like a video game player can be faster, can break more tackles, can catch more balls. But can a video game player be more aware? Like that just didn't make a lot of sense to me. And so I would always take all the points out of the awareness category and divvy them out into the more important categories. Later in life, however, I learned after I started, stopped playing video games. Video game programmers put that awareness category in there not as the least important category but as the most important category. In fact, that economy that I spoke of, that economy of points, if you boosted your awareness rating, it pulled up all the other ratings in your player profile. So if you had a 60 rating on speed but 100 on Awareness, you played like you had 65 speed. And that was true for all the different categories. And so it paid off to have 100 awareness. Little did I know I could have won a lot more Madden tournaments against my buddies had I but known that that's how it worked. Somebody told me later that it was uh, having a new player that has high ratings of speed and strength and all these other things, but a zero in awareness would be like creating Forrest Gump from from the Alabama Crimson Tide. Remember that, where he's really fast and effective, but you can't get him to stop running? Like he just runs through the stadium, he doesn't get it, you know? Like that's what it's like to have a player with no awareness. And this is a silly little analogy that only Madden players might understand, but I've realized that that system of ratings and the way awareness worked is a lot like how faith works in our lives. And if we treat faith like it's just a side piece, we've got our work life, we've got our married life, we've got love life, we've got whatever life, and then we've got faith life over here, we're missing the point. Because faith actually serves in the same way that awareness did in that game faith, either boosts all your other parts of your life or it drags you down. Now, if you can imagine a Christian video game where you get to create your own profile, like you create yourself in a Christian video game and am I going to be a Methodist or a Baptist or, you know, like what am I going to wear? And, and uh, you, get to, you get to assign yourself all kinds of different, like ratings based on different Christian categories, like Bible knowledge, zero to 100. What would your rating be? Bible knowledge, you know, uh, prayer, uh, tithing. What would your rating be? I know what your rating would be. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. Most of you. Anyway, the, (laughs) I'm just joking around. And, (laughs) and, you know, and there's like donut eating. That's an important Christian skill. Like how good are you at eating donuts? Like, and, and then you'd have faith and faith operates in the same way in your life with God is if you have more faith, all these other parts of your life are boosted, pulled up. If you have no faith, you can know the Bible cover to cover. You can pray regularly every day. You can do all the other stuff Christians are supposed to do, but if you have no faith, it doesn't matter. Today I want to talk about the concept of faith, not just the effect of faith, but actually the substance of it, what it is, as we continue to talk about the story of Jacob. We've been following Jacob around for six weeks now. Uh, In the book of Genesis, Jacob is this Old Testament character that seems to have no relevance to everyday life today in 2019, but I believe, if you've been around, we've all found ourselves in Jacob's story because Jacob, like many of us, as much as he tries, just can't get out of his own way. He keeps making the same mistakes. He keeps burning the same bridges, sabotaging relationships, trying to fix his own messes and making it even worse. Like, Jacob is us in so many ways. And then in chapter 32 of the book of Genesis, something changes, and I think this was the turning point for Jacob. And if, you, if you're walking with Jesus, you can probably point to a similar like moment. It doesn't have to be a blinding Damascus Road moment, like overwhelming miracle moment, but you remember a time when you said, all right, I'm in. And that's what we call a justifying moment or the the conversion moment for the Christian. And Jacob's conversion moment was in Genesis 32 when God came and picked a fight with him. In the middle of the night, God wrestled with Jacob. And Jacob, instead of running, instead of cowering or pretending like it wasn't really happening, Jacob engaged in the fight. And he cleaved to God. He clung to him and he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he had the courage to fight and wrestle with God with all of his doubts and insecurities. And God, that night, changed Jacob's name from Jacob, which meant deceiver, to Israel, which meant one who wrestles with God or struggles with God. And everything changed from that point. Fundamentally, what changed for Jacob is that he converted from mere belief to true faith. And this may be the most important conversion moment for us in this room today, because I'm sure we have atheists in the room. I find atheists, true atheists to be few and far between. I think even a lot of people that call themselves atheists are, are really not if you dig deep enough. There's some belief in an objective reality, some belief in a supernatural being or intelligence in the universe, a spark. And so most of us believe, but we lack faith. And the conversion isn't from no religion to religion or from some other religion to Christianity. For most of us, the conversion will be from mere belief to true faith. And the difference is this. When you believe in God, um, you believe in him, insofar as he comes through for you. Your beliefs are circumstantial. But when you trust God, when you have faith, your belief in him is relational. You don't just believe in him, you believe him. And those are two very different things. So today we're going to look at Genesis 37. This is where we are in the story of Jacob. We're Just two weeks left, this week and next week, and then we're done with this story of Jacob and with this discipleship group season we've been in. I hope it's been life-giving for you. Um, Genesis 37, verses one through four. There's a big, long passage in your study guides. I'm not gonna read the uh, the whole thing. I'm just gonna read the first four verses, cool? All right, it's on the screens as well. Jacob lived in a land where his father had stayed, in the land of Canaan. And This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And now, first, before we get any further in this, I want to tell you that's a clue. And the more you read the Bible, the more you'll learn to pick up on clues. The clue here is that Joseph mentioned first after the father is not the oldest son. And in ancient Hebrew scripture, usually, traditionally, what was right was to mention the oldest son first. And the fact that Joseph isn't the oldest or even the second oldest, he's way down the line, he's the second youngest son, that he's mentioned first by name. And we get all these details. It tells you something, that something's out of order, something's not quite right, not quite as it should be. And then we start to see more of this unpacked as the passage goes on. And Joseph brought their father a bad report about them, about his brothers. So not only is Joseph being mentioned before he really should be, but he's also a what? Tattletale? Y'all are nicer than the 945 people. 945 people were like, he's a snitch. And I was like, snitches get, snitches. Snitch. there it is. All right, so uh, uh, y'all are like, tattletale. We've got kids in the room, I guess. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, Joseph seems to be exerting some authority over his older brothers. Authority that he shouldn't naturally have, but that has been given to him. Where does that authority come from? We find out in the next verse. Here we go. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. He loved Joseph more. That's where the authority to snitch comes from. That's why he's considered before his other brothers. His father loved him more. This is like rule number one. This is fatherhood 101 stuff here. You are not allowed to love a kid more than all the other ones. You can like a kid more than all the other ones. We all do. Like that's just part of it. You can't love one of your kids more than the other ones. That's against the rules. And so Jacob sets Joseph up here with some power and authority that he should not have okay, as a younger brother. So he loved uh, Joseph more than any of his older sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and Jacob made Joseph an ornate robe just for him, not for the other kids. Anybody with multiple kids knows, again, cardinal sin. You don't give one kid a present without giving the other kids a present, an ornate robe. That it was, it was awesome. That would have been a symbol of Joseph's standing as the preferred son. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Okay. So let's just leave this passage up for a second. I want to talk about it. Actually, that last little phrase, I think it's interesting. That could not speak a kind word to him. Actually, in the Hebrew, it says they couldn't even say shalom to him. And what it means is um, they were so resentful. I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship like this, but they were so resentful when he walked in a room, they couldn't even say hi. Married people in the house, anybody? You ever get to that place? I know we're all being polite churchy people today, but you ever get to that place in your marriage or in a close relationship where somebody walks in, you won't even do them the honor of saying hello. I will not give you the satisfaction of greeting you, ma'am. Like, like that's even a thing, but we think it is because we're so dug in and we're so resentful and bitter. That's a bad sign. You can't even say hi or bye or bless you when they sneeze. Like that's where Joseph's brothers were toward him. And whose fault was it? Jacob, the father. He set this whole thing up. He was out of line as a father. And this may be surprising to you because I just told you five chapters before this, Jacob had his conversion moment. And I thought, after your conversion moment, your sins go away, your habits go away, your tendencies from your pre conversion life disappear, right? Isn't that how it works? Of course, that's not how it works. But this is a big stumbling block for people who've been on the verge of faith. When you finally put your toe in the water with Jesus and nothing really changes in your old life, you still feel the same temptations, you're still pulled in the same directions, you have the same bad habits and tendencies, you wonder if it's real. I'm telling you that it's very common and normal for those old tendencies and old habits and old temptations to follow you into your new life post-conversion because it's not just your external behaviors that conversion will change. Converting to faith in Jesus is more than just changing your external behaviors, it's changing your heart from within. So uh, Jacob, I'm sure, (laughs) did not mean to repeat the sins of his family's past. He's in a relationship with God now. He's trusting. He's got faith in God. He's believing God. But he's still committing the same mistakes that his father and grandfather made. You may not know this if you're new to the Bible, but Jacob's not the first man in his family that has preferred one son over the other, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, preferred Isaac over Ishmael, and it caused all kinds of strife in the family's future. Uh, Isaac, Abraham's son, and Rebekah, each had their favorite. Isaac preferred Esau, Rebekah preferred Jacob, and that caused all kinds of strife between those two brothers. And here is Jacob committing the same mistake. It's like a script, almost, that just writes itself. It's so predictable. And what I wanna say is that the the truth of the Bible here is, is so obvious in our daily lives. Like this is something I see all the time. Whenever somebody's really struggling, deeply struggling with some kind of sin or repeated pattern of behavior, if we dig back into their family's past, and I don't mean like, tell me about your childhood, like I'm Freud or something, but like if you dig back into the family's past, you start to really see the patterns oftentimes, not every time, but most times, and it's very revealing. And if you could be honest just for a moment in your own mind, you could probably think of one or two things you've picked up, those inherited generational sins or tendencies that you've picked up, whether it's a tendency to react to stress a certain way, that's one of the most common ones. You tend to react to stress the same way you grew up seeing your family react to stress or, uh, or, or depression or anxiety or or coping mechanisms, or substance abuse, or any of these things, it's, it's just common sense. We see it all the time. And the Bible speaks to this on several occasions, and, and this really, I think, is one of the most misunderstood ideas in the Bible, because I think we hear it, and we think of God as vengeful or hateful, but like Deuteronomy 5, 9, for example, says that the sins of one generation are visited upon future generations, to the third or fourth generation, and importantly, at the end, I think it says, The third or fourth generation of those who hate me, that's God speaking. And so what that implies at the end of that passage, by the way, is those who hate me implies that the future generations continue in their idolatry in the same way that previous generations did. They don't seek the heart of God, and so these tendencies continue. But I don't think what this passage is saying is that God punishes future generations for the sins of a present generation. Or that God is punishing you for the sins of your parents' and grandparents' generations. I think what it says, logically, obviously, is that some, in some ways, future generations will be more susceptible to patterns of sin that exist in their family tree. You are more susceptible to certain sins because those sins have been prevalent in your family tree. You know what those are. I listed some in the in the study guides, and we've got some examples on the screen. But if a parent is uh, an active alcoholic, uh, the child is four to six times more likely to develop alcoholism. Sons of sexually promiscuous fathers are twice as likely to cheat on their wives in adulthood. Between a half and a third of all child abuse victims will become abusers in their own adulthood. And, And these kind of statistics go on and on. Science is backing this up. This is obvious. Like, this isn't a vengeful God in the sky punishing people. This is how sin works. And the question is, what is the answer? And I think our first knee-jerk response to that, your first reaction is going to be, well, I've got to get my behavior under control. I've got to do something better. I've got to figure this out and fix it. And that's a very Jacob thing to say. Right? It's well-intentioned. Don't get me wrong. And I believe, like, behavior modification is a great start. Like, go do it. Go to therapy. Go to recovery. I mean, this morning, I sat in Starbucks at 5 a.m. editing this Sermon that was driving me crazy at 5 a.m. at Starbucks, and I sat next to a, a sponsor in a recovery program. She was working with her new um, uh, sponsee. It was, it was beautiful. It was beautiful to witness, and there's this stuff happening all the time. Do it. Pursue it. Go change. Be good. But listen, don't rely entirely on your own ability to change. Because you will set yourself up for failure and disappointment, and at some point in time, you're going to tailspin. If it's all on you, you're going to tailspin. Because you, yourself, and I, myself, we're not capable of carrying that kind of a burden. So the game changer is not gonna be your ability to modify your behavior. The game changer is gonna be faith. If you inject into a long line of people, a family tree that sins in the same way for generations, if you inject one man of faith, one woman of faith, that has the power to change the trajectory for future generations in ways I believe behavior modification does not. A person of faith doesn't just modify behavior, a person of faith learns to see reality through a different lens. When you don't just believe in God but you believe God, you interpret every facet of your life differently. And what changed in Jacob's story in Genesis 32 wasn't his ability to behave well or to parent better. Obviously, he's still making the same mistakes. What changed in Jacob's life was his relationship to God. Before that wrestling match, he was a believer. He believed in God and he prayed wrote prayers to God. After that relationship, he believed God. After that wrestling match, he trusted God. And that is what I'm calling you to consider um, today as well. That's been my uh, experience with God as well. All right. So I believe uh, faith is what changes everything. Now, what we see next, y'all, in the, in the story of Jacob, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly through about 12 chapters of Jacob's life because we're about out of time in this series. What happens next is important for us to see because... Though Jacob now trusts God, he has to sit through the consequences of his sin and trust God through those. What happens next is painful. Joseph goes out to check on his brothers because Jacob sends Joseph out to check on them and bring him back a report of their behavior, which drives his brothers up the wall and here comes Jacob prancing out in his new robe that a daddy made him and his brothers just, they snap. And they take him and they beat him and they throw him in a pit and they sell him as a slave for 20 pieces of silver and they're done with him. Then they go back and tell Jacob that a wild animal killed Joseph. And, Jacob, and, and Joseph's gone. Joseph is shipped off to Egypt where he serves as a slave in a foreign land. He is alone, destitute, desperate. And yet somehow he doesn't fall apart. Serves as a slave for a season and he does well until he is accused falsely of rape. At which point he is thrown into prison, guilty until proven innocent, with no defense. And he goes to prison, and again, he doesn't fall apart, he doesn't tailspin, he continues to talk to God. Hmm. He gains the favor of the prison warden and eventually he gains the favor of the Egyptian pharaoh and he ascends the ranks of Egypt until finally he's appointed as pharaoh's vice regent. Just this incredible rags to riches story For Joseph, but through it all, he holds on. And and what what kept him in in sane mind, what kept him ascending those ranks wasn't his behavior, it was his faith in God. Joseph was a man of faith. Why? Because generations before, his imperfect father, grandfather, great-grandfather, they all had faith in God. And though it didn't fix their behaviors or their tendencies, it caused them to see the world differently. And that's what changes when you have faith instead of mere belief. You begin to see, even in your worst mistakes, the goodness of God. All right, Uh, that story concludes with, uh, this uh, awful famine that had taken over the land of, uh, of Egypt and the region around it. And, and what happened is that Jacob's family, his wives and his sons were starving to death and, and desperate for food. Jacob sent his sons to Egypt to beg and grovel for a little bit of food so they could survive. And who is there to greet them in Egypt but their long lost brother, Joseph. And by his recognition of them, his forgiveness toward them, they survive. Now listen, this is the difference faith makes. Were it, faith helps you to see that were it not for the mistakes Jacob made, his family might have starved to death in the wilderness. And this is the, this is the matrix moment for when you move from a mere believer to a person of faith. Were it not for the mistakes Jacob made, God's goodness might not have been known in this way were it not for this dark season that Joseph endured on his own in a foreign land as a slave, as a prisoner. And they might not have ever known this salvation that came their way. That saga that began in betrayal and blood ended in glory. Because that is how God works. Listen, uh, one of my favorite Christian uh, theologians uh, once wrote this. This is A.W. Tozer. He said, we shall not seek to understand. Listen, listen, this is important. We shall not seek to understand so that we may believe, but to believe so that we may understand. Hear what he's saying. He says, the unbelieving mind would not be convinced of any proof or by any proof, and the worshiping heart needs none six years ago this month i had my conversion justification moment away from mere abstract belief in god and into a relational intimate faith in god and when I was uh, just a mere believer, I was also this, uh, this tortured skeptic and I was always looking for proof. I was always looking for evidence. And when something wasn't clear, I always used it as an argument against God. And I always laughed and rolled my eyes when Christians said then what I'm about to say now. Now, in my life of faith with God, it's not that I don't look for evidence of God or I don't celebrate evidence of God or I don't search the scriptures and all that. It's not any of that. That stuff is less important to me now because I don't need proof to know God. I know God. And so what changes when you know God is you learn in good times and bad to know God the same, to worship God the same. And so when you're praying for something, if it goes your way, you worship him in gratitude. If it doesn't, you worship him wondering what he's trying to teach you through this season of no. When I was a skeptic, I used to say to Christians, you can't have it both ways. You can't pray for something, and then when it doesn't happen, you, ha- you act like God's still good. No, he's either good or he's not. He's either real or he's not. If he's good and he's real and he loves you, he'll do what you say. I used to think that's the smart way to think about God before I knew him. And now that I know him, I look back on the way I used to think about God as though he's a genie in a bottle like in Aladdin. I boiled him down to a wish fulfillment Santa God. And I see now how childish and silly that image of God really was. And how this, the way Tozer says, it is so much more profound. It's such a more profound thought. It is the most beautiful, eloquent, and profound thing I think a human can think. That if God is God, then he's God. And if you know him, then why keep doubting? Why keep wondering and looking for proofs? If you know him, then you love him and worship him regardless of whether things go your way. We're trying to sell a house right now. I'm barely standing up right now, y'all. Like, we're trying to sell a house right now, and it's just, it's just the worst. And I am such a, it's just a privileged, spoiled person, but like, it, I got strangers in my house right now. I want them out. Either buy it or go away. You know, that's what I want to tell them. <laughs> we don't even have a home. We're just eating at Chipotle four times a week and just trying to not fall out of love with each other. And like, we're just barely hanging on. But you know, in the old days, if, God answered my prayer and came through. We sold the house. And maybe I'd believe in God a little bit more. I'd go to church a little bit more. I'd give a little bit more money. I'd talk about God a little bit more. But if he didn't, forget that. He doesn't care. And now everything's different. If we sell the house, I worship. If we don't sell the house, I worship. If, we, if things go my way, praise you God, you're merciful and good. If things don't go my way, praise you God, you're merciful and good. Because he's not my genie, he's my God. And his wisdom is infinite. And his goodness is infinite. And his love is infinite. And his power is infinite. Who am I to prove him? Who am I? If he's God, I don't even have the words to talk about him. And yet, The Bible speaks of a God, though infinitely wise and good and powerful and loving, he comes to us to struggle with us, to be known by us. And when he came to us, we collectively committed maybe the worst mistake humanity has ever made. We spilled his innocent blood. We beat him. Treated him like a prisoner, punished him for sins he didn't commit. We sold him out for 30 pieces of silver like Judas. We put him on a cross. But even then, God worked in our worst mistake to bring about our greatest glory. This is the power of faith. Faith is knowing and trusting God. In good times and bad, the same, because he's God. And you can put your whole life in his hands. And when things go your way, awesome. When things don't go your way, awesome. It's not a paradox. He's God, and you're not. And you can trust him that even when things don't seem to be going your way and things seem dark and and dreary and uncertain and unsettled, that he is working even on your worst day, even through your worst mistakes for your glory, for your salvation. If I could oversimplify it this way, I think the move from mere belief to deeper faith is looking at someone like Judas or the brothers of Joseph, these villains, we call them, and seeing that even they are doing the will of God in a way. And if Judas, someone as dark and twisted as Judas, if God can use Judas to accomplish his greater purposes, salvation for the whole world, then who are the people that are coming against you? The people you think are standing in your way your villains what power do they have over you if god can use judas god can use them and god could use you to bring about glory even through mistakes and darkness don't just believe in him have faith faith changes everything let's pray Jesus, uh, we don't want to settle anymore for mere religion or belief. And going through the motions of spirituality, it just doesn't satisfy. We want to know you. Help us, even though we are, many of us, skeptical and afraid of uh, giving ourselves over to something bigger than us. Help us to embrace this relationship that's in front of us now. It's not about religion or any denomination. It's not even about believing every single word in the Bible yet. We may not even understand that book yet. It is simply about Jesus. And trusting that in Jesus we see the one true God. A servant king. Dying on a cross. Dead in a tomb so we all can live abundantly and forever. Help us to live by faith and to walk by faith, trusting you no matter the circumstances. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.